You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome back to another episode of Christianity and Classical Culture on the Fleming Foundation. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner. With me, as always, is the inimitable Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. We're continuing on something that we started in season one, actually, last year, the discussion of the Aeneid book by book. And having already discussed books one and two, if you'd like to find those episodes, you can simply do that by searching for Aeneid on the main website. You can hear the previous two episodes, which I would recommend you do before jumping in with us into book three. But in this brief introduction, Dr. Fleming will bring us up to speed. Yes. Well, in book one, we all remember uh, Aeneas and the remnant of the Trojans. They're fleeing from Troy and uh, they attempt to go from Sicily where they have friends to, they're not sure where they're going, but they know it's on the co- roughly where Rome is currently located, to Latium. Uh, when a storm uh, is roused by the queen of the gods, Juno, and it drives them to the shores of North Africa, specifically what would be Libya. Juno nourishes hatred against Aeneas and the Trojans because she favored the Greeks in the Trojan War. Part of her uh, support for the Greeks was driven by hatred because um, Paris, in a famous uh, uh, judgment as to who was the most beautiful of the goddesses, Paris decided on Venus rather than on Juno, and, and his reward was to be given the most beautiful woman in the world as his wife. <clears throat> Juno thinks she can frustrate the will of Jupiter uh, uh, by causing Aeneas to dally and settle down in Carthage with the beautiful Queen Dido. Now, the will of Jupiter, Jupiter is that uh, the Trojans will have a magnificent destiny by becoming the Romans. And uh, Juno is a little more short-sighted and just wants what she wants, and she wants it now. Now, uh, while they are in Carthage, the uh, Aeneas mother Aeneas, uh, Aeneas mother Aeneas, Aeneas mother Venus becomes an accomplice. She thinks that if she can help Dido to fall in love with Aeneas, then Di- Queen Dido will be more inclined to take care of the Trojans. So they land on they land in uh, on. Uh, North Africa in Libya, where Carthage is being built. And Aeneas is virtually disconsolate. He's a man in despair who sees no reason to live. He wishes he were dead. This is a very strange, tragic hero, uh, epic hero. Um, He rouses himself, though, and his men. And when they meet Dido and see her city rising, they're very envious of the fact that Dido and her runaway Phoenicians have a home and the Trojans do not. They're obviously tempted to stay there and settle down, but at a a banquet, Queen Dido asks Aeneas to tell his story. So the first four books of the Aeneid are framed this way. In book one, we get the the, the landing in North Africa, the meeting with Dido, the, the whole thing set up. Book four, we uh, see Aeneas and Dido falling in love and having this passionate affair, 
until Aeneas is warned that he has to leave. Books two and three then are Aeneas telling the story of the fall of Troy and the wanderings of the Trojans. So uh, these two books, books two and three, provide an essential background, not just for the basic story, but for understanding the character and the destiny of our hero, Aeneas. In book two, Aeneas has told us the horrifying story of the fall of Troy and, and in, in, with the slaughter of Priam and his son and the burning of the city. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a terrifying uh, account, more graphic than perhaps we're used to reading in most ancient uh, literature. Um, and it's also, he tells how a small number of Trojans under the leadership of Aeneas and his father Anchises, whom he ta- whom he uh, uh, takes with him along with his son, how they leave the the ruin the burning ruins of Troy, and uh, they set off on the wandering. So uh, so so th- this is where we are at the beginning of Book Three. So, what is the basic subject of Book Three then? Well, it's the it's the story of the wanderings. It is sort of uh, it's often this part of the Aeneid is often called the the Odyssean uh, Aeneid. That is, it's 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 based on um, thematically, it's based on the Odyssey. It structurally has many similarities, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, later. But in other words, it is the attempt of the Aeneidae, that is, Aeneas and his followers. Uh, to find a home, and it's both uh, their geographical wanderings, but also wanderings which are to a large extent uh, intellectual and spiritual wanderings. Well, let's go with the low-hanging fruit first, Dr. Fleming. Let's do the geographical wanderings. Okay. Well, the the route uh, is, if you look at a map, it's an obvious route. They go from Asia Minor, where uh, Troy is located, that is modern Turkey, and they go off to to the area northeast of Greece, sort of it would today lie in the countries of Greece and Bulgaria, namely Thrace. And then they go island hopping. They go to Delos. Where is which is the birthplace of Apollo and his sister Artemis, and uh, Epirus in, uh, in northwestern Greece, uh, and fi- and uh, and uh, verging on Albania, and finally uh, they make it to Sicily, where they see Mount Etna. They go to uh, Ortigia, which is the island where the city of Syracuse will later be founded. Uh, Gela, Agrigento, Drepanon, which is uh, Trapani. So they, they make a tour of Sicily. So that is the, the so, so Thrace, the islands, and uh, northwestern Greece, and then they hop over to Sicily. They, they, of course, they don't know quite where they're going. So now that we have a better sense of where they are sighted, what, in what sense are their wanderings intellectual or spiritual? Well, on a, on, a, on a simple level, they're constantly making mistakes. Uh, they're bewildered by what's happened to them. They've lost their city. They have no. They they can't return, and uh, and sh- and they're in new territory. They know very little about the the Greek world, much less uh, the West. That is, Italy and Sicily are completely unknown to them. They don't know where they're headed. They begin by. Uh, 
trying to settle down in Thrace. Uh, but in trying to clear some land, they they start Aeneas starts pulling on bushes, and it's a rather ghastly uh, scene. I wonder if you could read. Uh, it starts at line forty in book three, uh, if you have it in front of you. I do. Uh, is that starting with aud- auditor or quid miserum? Uh, yeah, quid miserum aine alacarasia. Quid. I have to remember to use classical pronunciation since we're the <laughs> classical part of Christianity and classical culture. Uh, go, go ahead and do it with your uh, savage Catholic uh, method. Quid miserum enia laceras, iam parce sepulto, parce pias celerare manus, non me tibi troia externat, hu fuge crudelis teras, Fuge litus avarum, nam polidorus ego, hic confixum ferea texit, telorum sedit iaculis in crevit acutis. Okay. I should have practiced that, Dr. Fleming. That's true. Um, <laughs> I'm about merciless on questions of meter, as you know. Uh, and if you've seen our yes. website, we have we have now discussions of, of poetry. Uh, I'll I'll give you the Loeb translation. Um, he hears a piteous groan from the depth of the mound where he's digging, and an answering voice comes to my ear: "Woe is me! Why, Aeneas, dost thou tear me? Spare me in the tomb at last! Spare the pollution of thy pure hands! I, born of Troy, am no stranger to thee." Not from a lifeless stock oozes this blood. Flee this cruel land, flee the greedy shore, for I am Polydorus. And here an iron harvest of spears covered my pierced body and grew up into sharp javelins. Um, then indeed with mine borne down with perplexing dread, I was appalled. My hair stood on end and the voice stuck to my throat. So this Polydorus was a young son of uh, Priam, the king of Troy, and he had been sent with a lot of money to the king of Thrace for protection in case the Trojans lost the war. They wanted they wanted this kid to be able to carry on, and instead, the uh, the impious Thracian king, when he realized he could make friends with the Greeks who were about to win the war, so he simply grabbed the wealth and uh, and uh, killed the poor kid. And it's, uh, this is one of our early indications that Aeneas has to have mental and spiritual clarity in order to find his way to a true new home. It's not going to be the first stop, not someplace conveniently located to the original Troy, and that uh, the world is full of, of not just of overt villainy, but of the kind of disloyalty, ingratitude, and treachery that has been uh, shown by this Thracian king, and uh, it's a uh, it's it, it's it's a kind of revelation to Aeneas, his father, and the Trojan people that they're living in a very hostile world. One of the things uh, that annoys, uh, say, Greek scholars about the Aeneid is it's, it's very hostile to the Greeks in general. There are some nice Greeks portrayed and they're this or that uh, memory in it. 
uh, in it, but uh, it doesn't reflect uh, Virgil's attitude toward Greek culture at all. But it's a necessary part in constructing the story. I mean, if you're if you're telling the story of uh, uh, Wyatt Earp, you can't be you can't be uh, friendly to the Texas Cowboys that he was busy eliminating in Tombstone, Arizona. And so here, the, the Greeks are set up as uh, pretty treacherous. And the, the foil for Aeneas <clears throat> in these early books is clearly uh, Odysseus. And while Aeneas, everywhere he goes, is uh, tries to be honorable and fair and just, kind, um, the 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 Roman view and the the later Greek view of uh, Odysseus is that he's unreliable, he's wily, he's too smart for his own good, and he doesn't doesn't respect moral conventions. So they end up on Delos, the island sacred to Apollo and Artemis, where uh, where they were born from from Leto, and there they learn that they should seek their ancient mother. Now, <clears throat> Anchises, the father of uh, Aeneas, and if you know the story, you realize that Anchises, as a young shepherd, had been seduced by the goddess Venus, and so he is a particular, he's a touched human being. And Anchises misinterprets this, uh, this prophecy, this oracle, to mean Crete, because there's a tradition by which the, uh, an early founder of Troy came from Crete. But when they go to Crete, uh, where fortunately King Adominus has gone into exile, and so they're, they're, the things are disorganized enough for them to land. It's interesting how Virgil actually considers these, these myth of, mythical facts. They're, they're afflicted by plague. And so they realize they made a mistake. So again, they're, they're constantly uh, misinterpreting the evidence mis and, and confusing their own desire with, uh, with the reality of the situation. They decide to return to Delos, but their household gods, the Penates, whom they have carried with them from the burning Troy, appear to them and tell them they should go to Hesperia. Now, Hesperia is, is the land of evening. Um, Hesperus is the evening star and the morning star, but it's the, it's the West, in other words, uh, the land of the sunset. Italy, uh, it was interpreted in Greek to be the land, it, to be uh, the, the land of uh, Vitello, the land of calf meat, the land of veal. Um, and Caesar remembers this. Oh, yeah. You know, you could imagine the old man saying, yeah, now I remember that crazy daughter of Priam, Cassandra, with her prophetic gifts. She used to say this often, but because nobody believed Cassandra about anything. Uh, sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes I wonder if it isn't the fate of many, many of us to be uh, Cassandra. So uh, on the on the wanderings, of course, they they, they retrace many of the uh, footsteps and many of the adventures of Odysseus and other epic heroes like like Jason and the Argonauts are are repeated, and so they land on an island uh, where there are uh, harpies. And the episode with the harpies uh, shows that Aeneas really doesn't know where this land of Hesperia is. The Kalino, the queen of the harpies, has to tell him. She also predicts suffering and starvation uh, for the uh, for Aeneas and his people that they'll be eating their tables before. When, why why be, does she predict this? Well, we it's fulfilled later on. 
And so we'll see it. Uh, it's fulfilled in a, in, in, a, in a somewhat ironic way, but, uh, but she's, but I mean, but I mean, these are, these are terrible creatures. Yeah. What, what have, yeah, what have the Trojans done? Well, the, yes, the harpies are monsters, uh, but it is, and and so in traditional stories, you know, if uh, when, when a Greek hero lands on the island of the harpies, well, you get to kill them, you know, with impunity because uh, they're monsters. Well, of course, this is their country, and, and Kalino says this, what are you doing? This land belongs to us. You don't belong here. You just can't come muscling your way in which is what Odysseus and his men typically do when they land on probably Sicily, where Polyphemus and the, and the Cyclopes are. Uh, Aeneas, so you're saying harpies have right to Dr. Fleming? Absolutely. Har- har- harpies is people, too. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so uh, Aeneas' men are uh, in attacking the harpies are doing what they don't typically do that is they're acting like brigands which is what Odysseus Odysseus and his men uh it's how they behave now I, I want to make a and a, you would you wouldn't chalk this up you wouldn't chalk this up to ignorance Dr. Bunny <laughs> uh it is it is ignorance in a well it's it's they haven't the process of wandering it's a process of mental clarification and purification for them. And I think that one of the things that's going on here is that, A, they're finding out they're really not supposed to settle down and they're supposed to keep on going. They got to go much farther to the West. And second of all, I think they're also learning how to behave with uh, in a strange land. In, in the Odyssey, the Odyssey is written, you know, uh, reflecting a period of society which piracy and brigandage are normal. And so, you know, there's nothing wrong in Odysseus and his men behaving the way all, they're like Scottish reavers, you know, in, in, in the border ballads. Whereas later on, when, when uh, say, Hellenistic Greeks read this, they would get annoyed. And that's why uh, it becomes a theme <clears throat> in later poetry that uh, Odysseus is, a, is an ignoble creature, Ajax is a noble creature, and the the, the, the contest over get, who gets the arms of a, of uh, the dead Achilles becomes a, a, a great theme. And Ajax represents the old aristocracy, and Odysseus is like a kind of wily merchant who who runs around cheating and swindling and robbing. Uh, this is extremely unfair to uh, the Odyssey. Uh, because it reflects a certain condition of society. But Virgil, living in the Roman world, of course, he can play with this uh, as, he, as, he's, as he is doing. And so Aeneas has to be better than this. And, um, but the mistakes that uh, Aeneas and his men go deeper than uh, just ignorance. It's not just that they don't know where they're going, because each failure each failure that they uh, that they encounter as a result of their misunderstanding teaches them a lesson. <clears throat> when they attempt to settle in Troy uh, uh, or near Troy in Thrace, they're foiled by the ghost of Polydorus, who reminds them about wh- what happens uh, what happens if you fall into the hands of greedy men. It's almost at, at, this, at this point as if we're entering into uh, a little uh, Catholic catechesis 
on uh, the sin of uh, of usury and the, and money, uh, the desire for money as the root of all evil. But this was a constant complaint during the historical period of the late Roman Republic and the civil wars. The period, uh, all of these disorders, violence people betraying members of their own family, not just to save their skin, but to get wealth and power. And so <clears throat> all of this, all of these disruptions, I think uh, to a large extent that, that Aeneas and his friends have to put up with are reflective of conditions in the late empire and during the civil wars, first between uh, Julius and Pompey, and then later on between uh, Augustus and Mark Antony. Now you're saying, Dr. Fleming, that they're getting through this journey, that they are not supposed to settle down, that they are to move somewhere else. But this doesn't seem to apply to all Trojans, just their particular band, because we have that story of Andromache and Hellenus uh, settling down, you could say, um, uh, much, much later. Um, yeah. So is it, is it that their specific band of Trojans is fated to continue on the way that, let's say, Odysseus' specific band of Greeks? <laughs> has to go on? You know, there, that's, a, that's a good parallel. Um, uh, clearly, Aeneas and his uh, followers are, represent the future. They have, a different, uh, they have a different destiny from all the other Trojans. The story of Andromache and Hellenus and forming this uh, settlement in northwestern Greece it's a fascinating story. I mean, I don't know where it originates. It becomes popular in several plays of uh, Euripides. Uh, and it was later, of course, becomes, I'm sure by now, living in Paris, you've read uh, Racine's masterpiece, Andromaque, uh, which I had to read in college. And if you haven't read it, of course, I'm sure you'll go out and grab it uh, tonight. Now, the story is the son of, uh, the son of Achilles, Pyrrhus, or Neoptolemus, whom we have seen in Book 2 slaughtering uh, the son of Priam and then Priam dragging him through his own son's blood and murdering. There's a, a terrible, a terrible uh, human being. And he takes Andromache, the wife of Hector, back to his home in northwestern Greece uh, as his concubine. But he also brings with him Helenus, the uh, brother of Hector, who is also, that is, and Hector being Andromache's husband, and Helenus ha is a prophet. I mean, he sees visions of the future. He's a religious figure. So a love triangle, in fact, a rather complicated love triangle, depending on what, what Euripides you read, emerges. Pyrrhus wants to marry Hermione, who is the daughter of Helen and Menelaus, but the maddened Orestes, the son of Agamemnon, who uh, kills his mother, uh, Clytemnestra, he is also wooing his cousin, Hermione. Uh, he finally kills Pyrrhus, and Helenus is a chosen king under strange circumstances, and takes Andromache as his queen. So, it's a, so this story, Virgil counts on the fact that the uh, educated Roman readership will be very familiar with Euripides because Euripides was by far the most popular uh, uh, writer of tragedy in the Hellenistic and Roman world, partly, I think, because of his uh, emphasis on character. Um, when we see him at this point, 
he is still, Aeneas is hardly an heroic character. He is the shell of a, of a hero, as he is at the very beginning in the book, in the storm in book one, when he says, would that I had died at Troy. And when, when Andromache sees him and recognizes him, she says, is he really alive? And he answers, we wo equidem, we tam quex strema per omnia duco. I live for my part, and yet, and I'm dragging out my life through every extreme. And that is from one mis- I go from one, one extreme misfortune to another and emphasize his, uh, his deep unhappiness. He's lost his wife. He has lost his city. He has lost everything that an ancient person lived for. And he envies these Trojans in northwestern Greece. They have found a home. They're building a little city, which is sort of a like a, a housing track version of Troy. They call it Parwa Troia, Little Troy. And the uh, the, pa- the 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 marital pair, Andromache and Helenus, are setting out with in, with some success to do what Aeneas thinks he has to do. That is rebuild Troy on a miniature scale. But Andromache is nonetheless extremely sad. Uh, She is uh, living in the past, not for the future. She mourns her slaughtered son, Astyanax, whom the Greeks murdered uh, when they take the city and and just as they kill Polyxena, the daughter, and, uh, and they give her as a bride to the ghost of uh, Achilles, and we saw all that when we talked about book one. When she sees Aeneas' young son, Ascanius, she, it's as if she recognizes her own son, uh, Astyanax, who, whose name means Lord of the City. It's an ironic name because he never grows up. And she calls him the surviving image of Astyanax. Uh, Stephen, if you could read uh, lines uh, 344 following. Uh, that would be uh, helpful. It's a beautiful scene. Talia fundebat lacrimans longosque ciebat in casum fletus cum sese amoenibus heros priamides multis helenus comitantibus advert agnios citque suos letusque ad limina ducit at multum lacrimas verba inter singula fundit, procedo at parvam troiam simulataque manis, pergama, et arentem santi cognomine rivum, agnosco sceaque ampletor limina porte, nec non et tucri socia simul urbe fruntur, illos porticibus rex acip Acipiebat inamplis, aule medio libabant poculabaci, impositis auro dapibus paterasque tenebat. Tenebat. Thank you. I'll give you a little bit of the uh, of the uh, authentic. By the way, the line three forty right before that has one of the few half lines in Virgil where the sense. Because Virgil didn't complete every line, although in in the in the Renaissance they said he. Uh, he uh, he liked it this way, you know. He would leave these half lines, and so there are po- English poets who uh, will leave a half line like this. It's a uh, doctor. You, Kopf- you don't you don't support this theory, Doctor. <laughs> doctor Kopf tells the story of when he was in college 
going on a tour of southern Italy and and he's in, and uh, and going to a museum and the guy took them around and he says this uh, this this picture of Michelangelo it's not to finish because Michelangelo no it look better that way <laughs> it's sort of that uh, I'll I'll give you a little bit of the, uh, the the taste of the classical Latin Talia fundebat lacrimans longosque quievat in casum fletus cum se samoinibus heros, priamides multis elenus comitantibus advert. Now, the, 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 the reason I've asked you to, to talk about this is because it is so sad. You know, uh, 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 the Andromache has just seen Ascanius, and she says, when, whom now, when, and, and actually here, the, the broken line works. When Troy, she, it's as if she's breaking off. Has the lad nonetheless some love for his lost mother? Do his so she she even sees the problem, you know, because poor Ascanius is without a mother, and so she's imagining her she's projecting her own feeling of love for her lost son. Such words she poured forth weeping and was awake, idly awaking a long lament when the hero Helenus, Priam's son, draws near with a great company. He knows us for his skin, for his kin joyfully leads us to the gates and freely pours forth tears at every word. I advance and recognize a little Troy with a copy of great Pergamus and a dry brook that takes its name from Xanthus and embrace the portals of a Sian gate. And in other words, everything here is Troy in miniature created out of nostalgia. And, uh, and it, it is, um, a, a great sense of melancholia, a little bit. Uh, the only place we really get this in uh, in uh, in the Aeneid, I'm uh, sorry, the Odyssey, we get we get a point where uh, of uh, looking. Uh, Odysseus looks out at the sea and suffers this this great desire uh, for return because nostalgia. It's a very evocative word in English, but you know it's a Greek word. Nostos means a homecoming, a going back home. And algos means pain. So it's the suffering, the pain you have in contemplating the, the, your desire to, 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 to return to return home. And this, this whole first three or four books of the Aeneid are a series of his attempts to, to try to recreate some feeling that he can have a home, whereas what he has is a destiny. Not, he's got to create a home. So in, in a way, it's the failure, it's the failure of uh, nostalgic conservatism. You know, uh, when the conservative movement began developing in the, in the 50s and 60s, it was a desire to create, recreate a kind of world before all the disruptions of World War I, the Depression, and World War II. And we could, as you know, Harding's, Harding's you know, policy was to return to normalcy. You, you can't return to normalcy. You can't go back. You, the world of your childhood is gone. And I used to tell my colleagues at the Rockford Institute, my friend Alan Carlson in particular, who was always talking about how wonderful the 50s were, we're more likely to return to the 10th century than we are to return to the 1950s. That is, we're undergoing a world historical disruption, and we can't just say, let's just pretend it hasn't happened. Let's just pretend, you know, there's a Merle Haggard song where back before Elvis, <clears throat> back before the, the Nixon lied to us all on TV. Well, we can't go back. 
And <clears throat> what I call short-term nostalgia is a very destructive long-term nostalgia to read, you know, to read a Homer or to read Dante and to and to take lessons about how life could be better. That could be quite wholesome. But just to say, no, things were better when I was a kid and I want to hold on to those good things. No, no, you have to you have to grow up and realize that that in our case, in our case, that world is gone. So Andromache and Hellenus are living in the past while Aeneas has a, a future, a different future, shrouded in mystery and uncertainty as it is, it is still a glorious destiny that he doesn't understand. Hellenus, having prophetic power, foretells some of their wanderings and instructs him on how to avoid various perils. Don't go into Greek cities, for example. Uh, there are monsters in Sicily of various kinds that have to be avoided. <clears throat> well, is it, it? I mean, that—that's a rather obvious imitation of the Odyssey, isn't it, Dr. Fleming? Mean, the yeah. Sicilian episode. Yes, exactly. And uh, you know, they run into the same character that is Polyphemus, the wounded, uh, the wounded Cyclops, and and it's explicitly tied because uh, they find this young Greek who has been left behind by Odysseus, and uh, whether through accident or malice, it's it's hard to tell, but it doesn't show great leadership to let, uh, to let one of your people go. And uh, so, in fact, the first six books of the Odyssey, as I mentioned at the beginning, are, they follow more or less different of the Aeneid, excuse me, I keep on confusing everything. The first six books uh, of the Aeneid more or less follow different aspects of the Odyssey, although the two most powerful books, uh, one in four, do not. They're quite original, though four is has some roots in uh, the uh, Argonautica, the story of Jason and the Argonauts. And when we get to book four next time, the next time we take up the Aeneid, we'll see how the, the love story of Dido and Aeneas does parallel the love story of Jason and Medea. Well, would this be a good time to maybe just chat briefly about some of the similarities and differences, Dr. Lemieux? Sure. Um, for example, Odysseus is wandering in search of the, uh, of the past, his his already existing family, his home, his island, whereas Aeneas is wandering in search of an unknown home where he will find a new wife and have a new, and have a new family and found a new nation. Odysseus loses all his men on his wanderings because basically, well, they make a lot of mistakes and he is, but he is an, he's a loner. He's an individual. He's out for himself. His men are reckless, but Odysseus, uh, Aeneas is the good shepherd. This is very, very strongly emphasized. He lives for his people. Odysseus dallies with women who take care of him while he's wandering and he enjoys their favors. Uh, Aeneas uh, is, because melancholic, he's tempted at one point, and that's by Dido, because he wants to... He, he, he doesn't have a wife to return to, and died. the great temptation is, can't I just settle down here in Troy with this beautiful woman who loves me? She's competent. She's intelligent. She's, she's creating this, this wonderful community called Carthage. Both Aeneas and Odysseus go to the underworld, but while Odysseus goes to find out how to get back to his home in Ithaca, 
Uh, by contrast, Aeneas is discovering not just his own future, but the destiny of the Roman race, you know, and uh, re recalling the very uh, first lines of the Aeneid, you know, so, so it took such effort to found the Roman nation. And so that is, that is the story. Uh, that is the, the basis of the story. This is not just a, uh, a nice tale. It's not just a tale of heroic adventure. Uh, Virgil's story is really the story of Rome, told through one character, that is Aeneas. So Aeneas, on the one hand, is the mythical character Aeneas. He also, to some extent, is uh, Augustus the emperor, Augustan man, and, and he makes this very clear at various points. But he's also, he is, he is, he is the exemplary Roman. And so the things that Aeneas learns, what he's learning how to be is he's learning how to be the person who will found the Roman race. And this requires mercy. It requires self-restraint. It requires self-sacrifice. It requires discipline. And it also requires <clears throat> a religious faith in the gods and the destiny they have given you. And uh, all of this is uh, really essential in, in, uh, in the book, you know, my, my old teacher, Brooks Otis, referred to it, Virgil, as the creator of civilized poetry. And mm -hmm. what he means by this is, of course, uh, some of what we've been talking about. But in other words, the hero Aeneas is a different kind of hero because it's his feelings, it's his sensitivities, it's his morality and his sense of destiny that we admire. <clears throat> and he's rather, rather different from... Uh, especially from both Achilles and uh, Odysseus. Well, I mean, if we want to frame it in terms of of the Odyssey, Dr. Fleming, following your theme, in a certain sense, Aeneas has to be both Telemachus and Odysseus. Yes. As you say, Telemachus in the first four books of the Odyssey is essentially learning things from all these great warriors that went off there. He's learning stories about his father, but he's also, as you say, learning to be... Uh, a, king, a future king. So Aeneas has to take some of the characteristics of Thermicus. On the other hand, in no universe is Aeneas going to yell out to Polyphemus, hey, by the way, make sure you tell everybody it was me and my name's Aeneas. So yeah. it, it almost that we take the best, uh, Aeneas in a certain way takes the best of Telemachus and the best of Odysseus although he doesn't have Odysseus as wily and cunning. Yeah, he gets rid of all the fun. Right. You know, a, story, a story I used to tell my students, and it rarely got a laugh, but I would say, look, you know, Romulus and Remus. Remus, this grim organizer, is building the walls of the city, Romulus. And so his brother Remus, who is the wit, uh, starts saying, oh, yeah, fancy walls. This is great. And he starts leaping back and forth across them to show how inconsequential Romulus' construction is. So Romulus takes out his sword and kills him, and, as, and thus dies the sense of humor in the Roman race. <laughs> now, the, the truth is the Romans have a trem tremendous sense of humor. And as my old teacher, George Kennedy, used to say, he said, Never, don't, don't be misled by white marble statues. These are Italians. And the 
one thing, it's the one thing you have to always bear in mind. You don't get this so much in Virgil, but you get it in Horace, you get it in Catullus. You realize these people, these people would have been very happy at the court of Lorenzo de' Medici or in a in a Federico Fellini movie. And uh, <laughs> but if you read Petronius, this is why you know Fellini made. I, I never could sit and watch it, but he made this movie on the Satyricon. The the truth is that. There's a lot of wild, fanciful, exuberant Italian humor that runs throughout. It's not the way the Romans saw themselves. And it's not the way Aeneas will act because he is the ideal Roman. Whereas the real, uh, and by the way, Julius Caesar, you know, tries to be the, the marble Roman. Although we know that uh, when he uh, when he let down his hair, he was quite a, quite a a personable guy to spend an evening with, said that Cato the Younger, the most wooden and marble-like of all the Romans, Cato uh, drank the equivalent of a fifth of whiskey a day. That is, he was a very a very heavy drinker, and he got very uh, lighthearted and and, uh, and uh, full of fun when he was drinking. So there, there are these two sides of the Roman character. <clears throat> There's the side that we're supposed to, that we admire, should admire, and it, it inspires a lot in, say, the British character and uh, historically, but there's also this other side of uh, the f- which which we don't get much of, if any of, in Virgil. That is the uh, especially by the time you get to the Georgics and the Aeneid, uh, there's there's no time for fun uh, here, and uh, which which is you know not nothing to complain about. Well, and, and I, I suppose when we were talking about these similarities, Dr. Fleming, I wouldn't use the term zeitgeist because that, that doesn't really a, a, apply to this. But these were, let's say, popular themes that were talked about in, in antiquity, that you would talk about uh, the underworld, uh, what, what your destiny was, what your duties were, um, what a, a good relationship was, whether it's framing with the possibility with Dido or going back to your original marriage. Uh, despite detours uh, stopping with uh, with Circe and other people like that, yeah, the uh, Virgil in the uh, in the Romantic period, when people began to be infatuated with all things Greek because they are more lively, more creative, and more original, all of which is true, by the way. Um, uh, ex- the classical tradition comes to us by way of the Romans; they didn't invent it, and uh, but. Uh, they completely missed the significance of Virgil. I mean, people like Byron and Shelley, because uh, what they, they they just saw Virgil as a very good imitator of Homer. In fact, what he's doing is something completely different. He's taking it, 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 it is as brilliantly different as, say, Dante is different from Statius and Virgil, whom he also imitates. But He's using these these themes of Greek epic, using them in a in a in a completely different manner. He's emphasizing uh, the the role of of uh, the character, the personality, the moral dimension, the human kindness and decency, and yet at the same time building the story of an entire people. There's nothing like this in Greek literature because there's nothing like this. In, in, in the Greek world, that is this notion of my people are a people of destiny. Uh, you know, the other people of destiny are the Jews, and they have this, you know, this, this strong conception of themselves as, uh, as uh, you know, born to, to and, and chosen by God for a specific purpose. The Romans had a similar notion. 
and and we see it most strongly in the uh, in the Aeneid. That is to 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 uh, to uh, punish the proud and to spare the defeated. And this notion of building a world based on order and justice and compassion is something is something quite different. And so one of the reasons we can have a Virgil is because the Roman world is 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 rather different. It it absorbs the Greek world which is more charming and more beautiful and more, more creative, but it, then it creates something, in, something of a great tragic beauty, which is, uh, which is not at all Greek. And so to be able to appreciate both of these accomplishments is something which uh, a good teacher should, should, should be to help do it. Well, and as a good teacher, Dr. Fleming, can you help summarize book three, in terms of what it does to advance the reader's understanding of the story and its purpose? Sure, I'll be very brief. Um, it gives us the uh, context of the Odyssey. So we see, so we see uh, Aeneas as a kind of epic hero that we're familiar with, that is like Telemachus, like Jason, like a, of all Odysseus. It, but it also shows us a man who is learning to be a master of himself. And with always in the early books, with the guidance of his father and Chises, he is learning to become a model leader, uh, though it, he will have lessons that he has to learn on his own. So it's very much, you know, like the part, like the uh, first four books of the of the Odyssey, the Telemachia, as you as you point out, which is, as they like to say, a Bildungsroman, a, 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 a novel about the education of a young man. But here, this is the this is the education of a middle aged man, and uh, to turn him into a Roman. So, why does Anchises have to die, Doctor Fleming? Well, Aeneas, think of, remember this. There's some. The, there's, there's, there's some obvious reasons why in the story he's got to die. Uh, for for example, Aeneas can't be his own man uh, as long as his father is around to advise him and tell him what to do. If we think in terms of Roman law, and this had, although I'm sure this occurred to every classicist who's ever read it, it only occurred to me recently. You know, if this were if we were talking about the the old Roman Republic or the Roman monarchy. Uh, Aeneas is a Roman aristocrat of the highest of the highest family, and thus, although he is the great political leader, he is technically subject to Anchises' jurisdiction. A Roman patrician during the high days of the Republic would have had to have gone through a ritual of emancipation if he wanted to hold a higher magistracy, if he wanted to be consul. He couldn't be consul and at the same time subject to his father's authority because his father would have the t- right to tell him what to do. And if you, if you uh, as, as some people used to say, if you diss your father, if you show disrespect by, for example, trying to seduce your stepmother or by striking him or insulting him, the father could hold a family council and have, have the death penalty pronounced on you and, and carry it out himself. So from the Roman way of thinking, Aeneas owes a lot of respect and obedience to Anchises. He can hardly uh, lead his people and establish this new race in uh, in Italy if he is still under orders uh, from his father. Uh, besides, why is old Anchises 
uh, had, after all, as a youth, succumbed to Venus herself, the goddess of love. He would see through Dido and her schemes and the schemes of, of Venus uh, to try to ensnare uh, uh, Aeneas. Now, Di- now, Venus wants him eventually to go to Italy, but she's just using Dido. Dido thinks she's going to land him and keep him there and uh, and is supported in this by Juno. Uh, and Caesar would have said, well, son, you know, uh, you've had a couple of weeks to have your nice affair with this beautiful girl, but now we're leaving and you will obey me and you will leave now. Uh, this would uh, this would sort of screw up the whole book four, which is the one of the probably the greatest love narrative in uh, ancient literature. So Anchises has played his part in the first couple of books and he has to die, uh, though he will emerge again in his most important role as a, a dead soul uh, in the underworld in uh, giving Aeneas uh, a key to how he will carry out his great destiny and the key to the future of the Roman race. So what do our listeners have to look forward to in book four? Well, in books one and three, we've seen the molding of the hero and the unfolding of his destiny, which has been really not fully known to him until this point. In book four, he will face his greatest challenge, which is the challenge of beauty, uh, the ch- this and uh, his love for Dido and his uh, the 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 fatal the fatal attraction of Dido, which is not only is she is she beautiful, not only could she provide all sorts of things for him, but also she can provide him a home, a refuge, a place where the Trojans could settle down and join with the Carthaginians and and form a great race. This is impossible according to the fates that have been declared uh, by Jupiter, but he will still be tempted. Well, we look forward to continuing on in this series with you, Dr. Fleming. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.